Welcome to the Weird Sisters Podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I'm the last sidekick. Joining me is Liz, the last police commissioner. Time to shut down the last signal. Danny, the last butler, has the night off. Our book this month is The Last Hero, the story that kind of does very little with a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't realized when I put the hold for the library what kind of book this was. So when I went to go pick it up, I was very, very convinced that I had somehow gotten like an illustrated version that was going to be like super abridged or something. And so I was sitting in my car in the library parking lot, like frantically Googling what pictures of this book looked like. <laughs> and I was like, no, wait, this is the book. Yep, it is. <laughs> All of the art in it is like super, super fantastic. But yeah, we'll get into my feelings on the on the the words itself, I guess. I wasn't able to locate an illustrated version on my end, mm -hmm. so you'll be able to give the perspective on that. Mm -hmm. But first, let's go over to the trivia section. Published September thirteenth, two thousand seven, and coming in at forty thousand words, the last hero is the twenty seventh Discworld book and seventh in the Rincewind series. It was originally published as an illustrated story featuring art by Paul Kidby. The audiobook, read by Stephen Briggs, lasts just over four and a half hours. The Last Hero was nominated for the 2002 Locus Award, and at time of recording, has not yet been adapted for stage or screen. Yeah, kind of a short trivia section, because it's a short thing. And most of the references are stuff that I want to mention when it comes up in the synopsis. That makes sense, I think. Our story begins in the city of Ankh-Morpork and its premier school of magic, Unseen University. Lord Vetinari, ruler of the city, has received troubling news about the legendary warrior, Cohen the Barbarian. It seems that Cohen has deemed himself the Discworld's last hero, and since the first hero stole fire from the gods, Cohen plans to return it. Specifically, he is bringing a massive bomb to the Discworld equivalent of Mount Olympus, which, if detonated, will destroy the entire world. <laughs> so, you know, strong premise. Yeah. Stakes have kind of never been higher. Yeah, it's not, I feel like, especially lately, it's been a while since we've had, like, a world-ending cataclysm as, like, the stakes. In the name of over-explaining the joke, I enjoy how returning fire in here is like used to mean giving back, but also a military retaliation. Oh, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely missed that. I don't know how or why Cohen has decided that he's the last hero. Yeah, it feels like, you know, uh, this is a kind of a gripe I've got about the entire thing. It feels like a lot of the characters who are in the story are there just because it is convenient, you mm -hmm. know? To stop Cohen from blowing up the Discworld, Lord Vetinari meets with various leaders of the city's guilds and the Wizards of Unseen University. Then to actually solve the problem, Vetinari enlists the aid of the great artist and inventor, Leonard of Quirm. Leonard designs a ship that will be launched over the edge of the disc and slingshot around the world in considerably less than 80 days. Yeah, it's a much smaller world. I kind of thought that the implication was that the Discworld kind of has the same, like, livable space as Earth, just distributed over a flat surface. 
yeah, like, I suppose that's very possible because, like, we don't get, like, measurements for anything. My mind is just like, oh, well, it'd have to be really small. So I think I'm imagining, like, the width of Discworld is, like, the uh, the radius of Earth. I'm bad at math, so I'm not sure if that's the right word. <laughs> I would be astonished if somebody hasn't figured some sort of calculation for it. <laughs> Yeah, somebody's probably, like, devoted, like, hours and hours and hours of their life to that. Yeah, that's probably somebody's uh, thesis paper. It's a good thesis paper, I think. Yeah. We see Cohen the Barbarian as he makes his way through the perilous traps and obstacles along the path to Cori Celesti, the Mountain of the Gods. Cohen and his silver horde of similarly aged barbarian heroes have kidnapped a bard to witness their adventure so that their great deeds may be remembered as a saga. It's also revealed that this is one adventure they do not plan to survive. Kind of a return to something we were talking about in a couple earlier podcasts of Terry Pratchett's ideas on choosing your own death. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense, and especially with like these characters who have chosen to live in a very specific way and have constantly confronted death. I think it makes sense that if this is an idea where we're going to return to, these are the characters to do it with. As the Silver Horde make their way up the mountain, they are joined by the traditionalist villain Evil Harry, as well as the elderly heroine Vina the Raven-Haired. Evil Harry's name is presumably a reference to Dirty Harry from the film series of the same name. Not really a lot of similarities in the character other than that. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like that's where that comparison begins and ends. (laughs) Yeah, and the same is kind of true of Vina to Xena the Warrior Princess. Mm -hmm. A very shallow parody that I think would have been better. One thing you could have done, like her using a embroidery loop like a chakram. (laughs) Yeah. She might do that. She does beat some thugs up using knitting. Yeah, I think in general, Vina's like very underused in this book. And I think part of this might be because so many of the characters are returning characters. I was most interested in her. And we got basically nothing of her. Yeah, I I feel like she had like three real scenes. (laughs) Although that's more than some characters get. Yeah, that's fair. (laughs) Back with Leonard of Quirm, he harnesses 200 swamp dragons to his flying machine which is dubbed the Kite. Joining Leonard in his quest is Captain Carrot Iron Founderson of the Ankh-Morpork City Watch, as well as Rincewind, the world's worst wizard. To everybody's surprise, especially his own, the librarian of Unseen University is accidentally loaded onto the ship. Yeah, this is where the book starts to kind of feel like a, a greatest hits album. Like, oh, it's all our old favorites. What are the, like, kooky things I've gotten up, into, gotten up to in the past going to do this time? A lot of the same thing. Unfortunately, the excess weight of the librarian means that Leonard's rocket calculations are incorrect, and the kite doesn't have enough dragon fuel and air reserves to reach their destination. So Ponder Stibbons, the most technically minded of the Unseen University faculty, advises the crew to land the kite on the moon, which not only has air, but is also apparently the original home of Discworld's dragons, and has plenty of food for the ones harnessed to the kite. A lot. I think all of the stuff with the kite and the moon are probably some of my favorite sections in the book, 
because it feels so magical and new. Mm-hmm. Being like, oh yeah, you know that like, because uh, we've all seen depictions of like early space travel uh, and like getting to see that through a fantasy lens that like fully embraces it. It's kind of fun. There's an entertaining bit in here where Carrot is like awed by seeing the Discworld from space and quotes some round world astronauts about how none of the different borders to, to various countries seem relevant from up here. And Rincewind and Leonard treat that as a problem that they could solve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting moment, both as like a character reflection on Carrot and also, uh, you know, the silliness of being like, well, how can we put lines we can see from up here? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if there's something to be said about, like, British imperialism trying mm. to establish those borders in a tangible way, like, permeating the philosophy of Discworld. Yeah, and I, I think that's fair. The hard part about, like, really digging into that idea and seeing how far it permeates in this one is that there's just not a lot of book here. Yeah. So we don't get a whole lot of time to, like, really feel out any of those intentional or unintentional implications. Even if it was, I think that the narrative is mocking that idea of, like, <laughs> yeah. actually drawing borders to to make things clear from space. Yeah. The Silver Horde and friends reach the peak of Cori Celesti and decide to sneak into the city of Dunmanifestin by disguising themselves as new mythic beings, such as demigods, muses, and valkyries. However, it turns out that evil Harry tipped off the gods. But Cohen is fine with it, because it shows Harry's commitment to the same narrative code that he follows. There is some kind of quality about this moment where it's like, oh, you rascal evil Harry. <laughs> it's kind of silly. It's fun. You know, I vibe. The gods toy with Cohen and the Horde for a while, and Cohen pulls a Yami Yugi from Yu-Gi-Oh! by rolling seven <laughs> on a six-sided die. I checked, that manga was published before this book came out, but I'm not sure it was translated into English by the time, so I doubt that Pratchett was influenced by it. <laughs> I hope so, though. That's going to be on my, like, conspiracy <laughs> board. The Bard has a confrontation with his god, Nugan, who's known for prohibiting a lot of desirable things, such as garlic and chocolate. If it was garlic and chocolate together, I would understand. Yeah, that, you know, I think that's fair. I think nobody should probably be eating garlic and chocolate on their own, though. Or at least I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Nugan is a cruel god. Yes. Just when it seems that the mortals and gods are about to start fighting, the kite crashes into the Dunmanifesting gate. Captain Carrot steps out of the wreck and promptly arrests Cohen and the Silver Horde, who recognize that Carrot is pretty much a hero of the code, same as them. Rincewind also explains to Cohen that detonating the bomb will end the world, and the bard clarifies that this means nobody will remember Cohen or his great deeds. So, to save the world from a crisis that they caused, the Silver Horde take the bomb and run with it off of the mountain, exploding far from the summit. I don't remember if the code was ever mentioned in any of the previous books with Cohen, because um, it's kind of been a while since he's come up. 
but I like the fact that it's not like explained, you know, that's just the code and it's vague and undefined. But we obviously get some like subtextual implications that it's like the hero's story is the code, you know, they're uh, you have to like go through a very specific journey with very specific goals in order to be one of those classical heroes. Yeah, I kind of see where you're coming from. I think that it might have been mentioned or at least hinted at. Yeah, I, I kind of wish those books were a lot fresher in my mind because I feel like especially with how much time we spend with Cohen in this book, it would help give me a greater sense of the arc we're on with him. Yeah. I think that one thing about these old school heroes that Cohen and the Silver Horde recognize in Carrot is the courage to tackle impossible odds, which did come up very deliberately in interesting times. Yeah, yeah. And especially, I think it's mentioned like two or three times in this book, uh, a one in a million chance is like a sure thing in the Discworld world. Yeah, that's been a running joke for ages. At the very latest, Guards, Guards, which is the eighth book. Yeah. Because there was a whole scene in that one about them trying to lower the odds to one in a million. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of feels like it's part of the same narrative code thing that the heroes are all about. And that's something that just permeates the entire structure of Discworld. That's like part of the world building. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I think is like A plus role building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this scene also has a meeting with the lady who's been a integral part of a lot of the Rincewind books, manipulating his fate to put him in the right place at the right time to thwart the machinations of fate. The lady's interesting. I wish that she got more of a scene as well. Yeah, especially because she's she's been such of an enigma throughout the entire series so even though we've gotten to like see peaks of her we've never really gotten to like interact with her in any kind of capacity mm-hmm. and she's very very interesting like i want to know more about her yeah so carrot persuades the gods to repair the kite so that they can go home but in return the gods demand that leonard paint the ceiling of the temple of small gods in Ankh-Morpork with an elaborate mural of impossible complexity. We get a brief scene like way earlier in the book about Mutchamrud Cooley's brother, whose name I'm blanking on at the moment, um, but who's the like head priests of the city. And I was like, I don't get why the scene is here. And then we reached the end of the book and I was like, oh, it's just to set up this in the flaking paint. As the kite flies back to Ankh-Morpork, the Bard and Evil Harry discuss whether the Silver Horde survived the explosion. Further down the mountain, we see a heptet of Valkyries come on horseback to collect the souls of the Horde, but they're confused when they can't find them. Then one of the Valkyries reveals herself as Vina in disguise. She forces the other six to dismount, and the shades of the Horde take the horses and ride away into the sky, with a brief detour to free the Discworld equivalent of Prometheus from his eternal punishment. I think it's really interesting that we return to the first hero because he's mentioned so briefly and like offhandedly at the beginning of the book as just being like, here's the premise for the story. This guy stole fire. So now they need to return fire in order to like complete that story. And being like, no, we actually, like, do get to return and, like, I don't know, it helps, like, wrap up that thread, I feel like. Mm Mm-hmm. 
There's a, also a, a bit in here where Vina talks with death and mentions how the gods would sometimes put heroes into the stars. I think the implication in this scene is that these days, the heroes put themselves into the stars. <laughs> yeah, this scene has kind of like, it's kind of poignant about death and legacy and all that, which is obviously very important to Cohen and his group. If they went through the whole hassle with getting the minstrel up the mountain just so that he could write a saga about them. Mm-hmm. We see the bard compose his saga, and it's a musical saga, which I think is meant to be more of a big deal than it is, like kind of presented in at least the text version. Mm-hmm. I wanted want it to be a rock opera. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be great. I can tell you that the art for this one is a single page where it's the minstrel sitting on top of a rock in like a really moody, rocky landscape. And his little harp or lyre or whatever it is, is made out of a skull. And he's like crying as he's singing. It's pretty metal. I would not be surprised if that was like directly referencing a specific album cover. Yeah, I, I sure hope so. Because it like it's like picture perfect for something like that. I think it <laughs> might be some of my favorite art in the book. <laughs> nice. Three weeks later, we see that Leonard of Quirm has finished the impossible painting, complete with a rendition of the creation of Adam. But instead of Adam, it's Cohen flipping off the gods. My biggest disappointment about this is that it's kind of like translucent and it's on the back of a two page spread um, with text over it. So it's kind of like if you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. But it's pretty great. So that was The Last Hero. What did you think? This is very, very far from my favorite book of the series. Agreed. I'll be totally honest. Yeah. I was trying to explain to my significant other about how I was feeling about this book so far. And the definition I came on that, like, stuck with me is that it's like a holiday special, you know? Mm -hmm. It's this very, like, self-contained, very, like, a simple plan like simple goal plot of the episode and all the characters are there and they're going to be the like most distilled version of their character and then it's like at the end of it it's like okay well that was entertaining but i don't feel moved by it or anything agreed like the biggest shakeup to the status quo is that cohen and the silver horde do seem to just actually die but it doesn't happen in a way that actually stops them from, like, coming back if they want to. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like there is a lot here that could have been fleshed out into a more emotional and fleshed out story. And it's not. It's just really stripped down. Because, like, the minstrel's whole thing is he's kind of, a like, a, a coward for, like, the first three-fourths of the book. And then he sees the horde and like all their glory and kind of changes his mind and realizes that, you know, he needs to write this saga. He needs to like pursue other stories like theirs um, because they're important and meaningful. And that's like the most of an arc we get for a character in this book, I think. And it only happens in hindsight. It does not actually happen in the book. A little bit, yeah kind of does happen in the book but you're right underwhelming yeah we just get so little information about him that it's like i can see it in like now looking back on it while reading it 
I was like, uh, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be focusing on here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of loosely constructed. It doesn't yeah. have a tight enough focus to really shine. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to sum it up. Either focusing on the new things that it brings in, like the moon dragons and Vina and all that stuff, mm-hmm. or focusing on the established characters and things would mm-hmm. have made it stronger. Yeah, I feel like this is a this book is a fun read if you're really into Discworld. But I don't think it's essential reading. Yeah, I agree. So it's like if you're going to skip a book, I think you'll probably be okay if it's this one. It is fundamentally a Rincewind book, like we said in the trivia section, but it's more of a crossover. But it doesn't commit enough to it being a crossover with the Discworld series is because we don't get anything from the Lanker Witches and Death only makes like a couple token appearances. Yeah, It feels like it's kind of just doing the least amount it needs to. Even not really doing major plot rewrites, I would have loved to see, for example, Rincewind having an actual confrontation with the gods because they're Mm -hmm. the reason why his life has been dragged into a series of adventures. Yeah. That and or Carrot could have had some choice words for them since his character arc in the Watch books has largely been about rejecting his divine right to the throne. Mm -hmm. Like, He obliquely hints at that sentiment, but I think it would have been more interesting if we got to see him actually get angry. Yeah, especially because that would have been a real, like, moment of character growth for both of them. And it's, like, right there. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. Kind of an obscure reference I want to bring up. Have you ever read Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut? I don't think so. In that book, there's this religion, Bakonanism, and it has a specific thing that adherents say when they commit suicide, which is, now I am going to destroy the world. This book reminded me of that, when Cohen's suicide mission is going to destroy the world. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a good, like, a good thread. <laughs> you can make the argument that Vonnegut's work is more absurdist, whereas Pratchett's stories are a bit more existentialist in their nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my experience with Vonnegut goes as far as Slaughterhouse-Five. I don't have, like, that background to, like, <laughs> really know more. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. There's something that popped into my head while I was reading that I wanted to mm-hmm. share. The main philosophical thrust of this story, to me, is that of the characters grappling with a sense of agency. So it's no coincidence that the main antagonistic god is the personification of fate. The impetus for the plot is that Cohen saw one of his barbarian friends choke to death on a cucumber, which is described as a poor way for a hero to die. And so he takes on this quest as an act of self-destruction, more or less. That's why he has a bomb. It's a weapon that destroys itself in use. But he doesn't realize that, like all acts of self-destruction, this will have collateral damage beyond what he intended. Yet even when he's told that the bomb will end the world, he doesn't immediately reverse his decision. That only happens when he realizes that it will also undo everything he's ever done, and wipe away the legacy that he spent the whole story trying to build for himself. It's more than a little selfish, but that's consistent with how Discworld presents these classic hero types. Yeah, I I think that's a a good and important thing to pick up about this book. Because I feel like that has the most narrative meat in it out of (laughs) most of the things in this one. Yeah, listen, I worked hard to try and find the thesis (laughs) for this one. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rinswin's best moment in the story is when he volunteers for the mission because he recognizes that any action he takes will inevitably lead him there. Contrast that with Carrot volunteering because it's the right thing to do, which I interpret as an outgrowth of how he was given a powerful destiny and chose not to fulfill it. Meanwhile, Leonard of Quirm seems entirely oblivious to any lack of choice he has in circumstances because he's always just excited about the new challenges and opportunities. However, none of them seem to actually grow from these challenges. Uh, the only character who does get development is, like you said, the bard, who learns how to be violently assertive from Cohen. Yeah. And gets to actually express that against his own god, the one he grew up worshipping, because Cohen is mm-hmm. scarier, basically, and he's learned from the best. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things in this one that are just on the like cusp of being really impactful and great that just don't happen and i don't know if it's just pratchett lost interest with this one and was like well it's complete enough or if i don't know it just this book feels like it's missing a few things man i would give good money to somebody who could take this basic premise and rewrite it into a more complete sounding story oh yeah yeah because it'd be great Especially if we got to spend more time with Vina and on the moon and with the gods. Like, there's a lot of really intriguing ideas that we just skirt by really fast because this book's not very long and we just got to get to the ending. Yeah. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. So I want to say thank you to Willow Carter for our theme music and to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you'd like to support the show, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or share the episode links that we post on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Reddit, or leave a comment on our YouTube channel that helps the almighty algorithm (laughs) help other people find us. Uh, You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash weirdsisterspodcast, which can also get you episode previews and means we might give you a shout out. This month, we thank Carol for being an official patron. Thanks, Carol. And of course, thank you, Liz, for joining for the discussion. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Aw, thanks. It's a lot of fun to be here. (laughs) And of course, we run a poll each month to find out our audience's favorite footnote. Many of the things built by the architect and freelance designer Berg Holt Stutley, or Bloody Stupid Johnson, were recorded in Ankh-Morpork, often on the line where it says, Cause of Death. Since this episode is short, and there's only there were only two footnotes that really worked for it, let's say I also read out the other one. Yeah, you know, complete it. Few religions are definite about the size of heaven, but on the planet Earth, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 16, gives it as a cube 12,000 furlongs on a side. This is somewhat less than 500 quintillion cubic feet. Even allowing that the heavenly host and other essential services take up at least two-thirds of this space, this leaves about one million cubic feet of space for each human occupant, assuming that every creature that could be called human is allowed in, and that the human race eventually totals a thousand times the number of humans alive up until now. This is such a generous amount of space that it suggests that room has also been provided for some alien races, or, a happy thought, that pets are allowed. (laughs) That's a good one, too. I, I was hoping that that one would win. That's all right. We still suck it in there. Two for one, this one. <laughs> hey, 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 that's value. Yeah. 
Next month, we'll be looking at the amazing Maurice and his educated rodents. Until then, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves.